Well, good morning. How's that better? I'd like you to take your notebook and your Bible and open with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. We are now in our 11th week of working our way through the 16 chapters of Mark. And let me remind us once again, our primary goal is not to get through the Gospel of Mark. Our goal is not to get through the Gospel of Mark. Our goal is to get the Gospel of Mark through us. That's two entirely different things. And our secondary goal is to, as we work our way through one chapter each week, our secondary goal is to find something significant, that might be a word I'll use, significant in each chapter, and identify that, and do our best to apply that to our life before we move on to the next chapter. Now, we've reminded ourselves multiple times, and I'm going to remind ourselves again this morning, there are four, maybe five, principles that repeat themselves chapter after chapter after chapter. And so we're trying to find these principles as we work our way through all 16 chapters. The first principle is this, Jesus is not just a good man. Jesus is the son of the living God. The second principle is this. Jesus, because he is the son of God, has the power to perform miracles. The third principle is this. Jesus did not do ministry alone. He recruited, trained, and encouraged his disciples to do ministry as well. Now just think about this for a minute. If the ministry of advancing the gospel... If the ministry of growing the kingdom of God is going to continue after Jesus returns to heaven, somebody has to be trained to do the ministry because just like here at Cross Point, ministry does not just happen. It takes a leader. It takes a champion. It takes somebody who is willing to invest their time and energy and resources in another person and disciple that person. And then the fourth principle that we've talked about time and time again is Jesus loved to teach in parables. He loved to tell these down-to-earth stories. You know, for years there's been this definition in evangelical churches. A parable is a down-to-earth story with a heavenly meaning. And that is the best way we can describe a parable. A parable is something that, that we think on the surface, we understand exactly what the story is. But it has the ability to... That causes us to think about it and ponder it and meditate on it throughout the day and the week ahead. And then we do our best to take the principles from that parable and apply them to our life. Now for this morning, in your Bibles at Mark 11, I'm assuming that you read all of chapter 11 this past week at home. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But I want to read the first 19 verses. So follow along in your Bible, please. Mark 19, excuse me, Mark 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. 
And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now let's pray just for a moment. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this precious book that we hold in our hands. And Lord, we ask that you would clear our minds from all the things we're concerned about and worried about doing today and next week. Lord, help us just to forget that stuff. We ask that you would speak to us, each person here this morning, that there would be something from this passage that we could take and apply to each of our lives. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So we have four Gospels, right? In our Bible, we have four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all sort of alike, and yet each one is different from the other three. Matthew has 28 chapters. Mark, the book we're studying now, has 16 chapters. Luke has 24 chapters. And John has 21 chapters. Our focus for this four or five or six month period is the 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Now, we've talked about this in the past, but let me remind us once again. Mark's Gospel emphasizes what Jesus did not necessarily what he said. Let me say that again. Mark's gospel emphasizes what Jesus did, not necessarily what he said. So because there's a lot of things that Jesus said in the other gospels that are not included in Mark, it makes sense that Mark's gospel is significantly shorter than the other three. 
Mark's purpose is not to give us a detailed report of everything that happened during the three years of Jesus' ministry. That's not his purpose. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark, how would we describe this? Mark sort of highlights certain significant events while at the same time he completely ignores other events that the other gospel writers have paid attention to and have included in their gospel. But when we understand that Mark's focus is on what Jesus did and not on what he said, then it makes sense. Matthew includes the Sermon on the Mount, the longest recorded sermon we have in Scripture of something Jesus said. And Matthew dedicates three complete, in our English translation, three complete chapters to the Sermon on the Mount. Mark doesn't even mention the Sermon on the Mount. He's not so much concerned at what Jesus is saying, but he's concerned about what Jesus is doing. Matthew gives us 14 parables. Mark only has four. There's no genealogy about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. None. Matthew includes, in fact, the first chapter of Matthew is almost all genealogy. Everything from how Abraham is a long, up-the-line family member of Jesus is born from the family of Joseph. Now, the reason, and I want to be respectful here, the reason that Mark does not include genealogy in his gospel is because he's writing to Romans. He's not writing to Jewish people. He's writing to people that live in Rome. And if I can say this, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm certainly not offending anybody, but the people who live in Rome actually couldn't give two hoots about this guy named Jesus and who his grandpa and great-grandpa and great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa was because they're not Jewish. These are Gentiles. They've never heard of this man named Jesus. But beyond all those details, and we could spend hours talking about the difference between Mark and Matthew and Mark and Luke and Mark and John. But once we get beyond all those details, the reason for the differences between these Gospels is because it's the Holy Spirit who told these men what to write. Okay? They didn't just lay out under their sunshiny day with the white clouds going by and get a piece of charcoal or ink and write this on a scroll. It was the Holy Spirit. Take your Bibles. Keep one hand in Mark 11. Don't take that hand out of there all day. Put Well, at least till we go home from church. Mark chapter 11. With your other hand, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. 2 Peter 1, 21. This is what God's Word says. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever taken even 15 seconds out of your life and meditated on that verse and tried to imagine what that means? Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I mean, 
Let me just think of some of the options. It could be that these guys just went into some kind of a trance and they didn't know what they were doing and, and the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of their arm and with their eyes closed, they, they're trying to figure out what they're doing, but the Holy Spirit holds the pen or the charcoal and the Holy Spirit writes on the scroll, that's not what happened. But we could get to that point by imagining that from 1 Peter 1.21. Somehow, the Holy Spirit, and we, we will eventually talk about this in our Sunday school class on the Trinity. The Holy Spirit had the power to introduce thoughts into the minds of the Bible writers. And so as they are writing on the scroll, they're not writing their thoughts. They're writing God's thoughts. For no prophecy was ever introduced by the will of man. There's nothing in this book written by man. This is God's holy word. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Matthew is different than Mark, and Mark is different than Luke, and Luke is different than John, and John is different than Romans, and 1 Corinthians is different than Galatians because the Holy Spirit told these guys what to write. Now remember, the Gospel of Mark has 16 chapters. Most people would agree, most people would agree that Jesus' ministry here on earth lasted more or less three years. Okay, I've seen articles in, where it may have been three and a half, but for our time this morning, let's just agree that Jesus' ministry on the earth lasted three years. All those that agree, raise your hand. The rest of you can leave. Thank you. Okay, so let's imagine that Jesus' ministry lasts three years. If we were going to divide Mark's gospel equally into those three years, there would be approximately five chapters for each year. Would you agree with that? If the ministry of Jesus is three years, and Mark tells us about this ministry over the course of 16 chapters, then we would agree that each, each five chapters should be more or less one year. Would you agree with that? Say yes. Would the rest of you agree with that? Okay, we're all on one page. Three years, 16 chapters. But that's not Mark's purpose. He's not an accountant. He's not trying to divide and multiply everything equally. He's not concerned about making sure the record is equally divided. If we can agree, and I I believe we can, if we can agree that Jesus' ministry lasted three years, then this is what we have to agree on. If his ministry lasted three years, then we can say that the first Ten chapters of Mark's gospel tell us what happened in the first two years and 51 weeks. Okay? Let me say that again. If we agree that Jesus' ministry lasted three years, then we have to agree that the first ten chapters of Mark tell us everything that happened in the first two years and 51 weeks. Because by the time we get to Mark chapter 11, Jesus only has one week to live. And for reasons that we will never know or understand till we get to heaven, and even when we get to heaven, it might even not be a topic when we get to heaven. Mark uses the last six chapters, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, 
to tell us about the last week in the life of Jesus. Now, take your hand out of Peter and go back to chapter go back to Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel begins in or around Jerusalem. Keep one hand in Mark 11, put your other hand in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Now this is really difficult to do if you're looking this up on your phone. Because it's hard to keep Mark chapter 11 in the electronic Bible and then move back. Dave's agreeing with that. I say, okay, well you need to get two phones. There's your answer. Look at Mark chapter 1 verse 5. I want us to see that this whole gospel record begins very near the city of Jerusalem. Mark 1 5, in all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem. Say it with me, Jerusalem. And all Jerusalem were going out to him. They're going out to this person called John the Baptizer, or we call him now John the Baptist. They're going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 5, we read about John the Baptist's ministry of baptizing, and it's being done just outside the city of Jerusalem. So there's where Mark begins the gospel. Turn a couple pages to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3, verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and, say it with me, Jerusalem, Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from all around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. A great crowd from where? Jerusalem and other places. Now go back to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, the first three verses, Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. Verse 1, now when they, with, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Keep one hand in Mark 11. With your other hand, turn to Zechariah chapter 14. Now what in the world, where is that? If you get to Matthew chapter 1, go to the left. You're in this little tiny book called Malachi and the book right in front of Malachi is Zechariah. And here's why we want to know where it is. Because someday you're going to be in heaven. Lord willing. And you're going to meet this little guy named Zechariah. And the first thing he's going to say is, how'd you like my book? That's why we need to know what's in Zechariah. Zechariah 14. According to Zechariah chapter 14, the Mount of Olives is going to be the final site of judgment. And the rabbis associated the Mount of Olives as the place where the Messiah would come. Now look at Zechariah 14. I'm going to read verse 4 and 5. On that day his feet, we're talking about the Messiah, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Now just hold on. Wouldn't you like to be standing in Jerusalem when that happens? 
The earth just sort of opens up. The mountain splits in half. Half of the mountain goes north. Half goes south because the Messiah has shown up. Verse 5, And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azale. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Let's go back to Mark chapter 11. Mark seldom mentions geographic places by name. It just doesn't happen. You can go back and reread the first 10 chapters. Very seldom does he identify geographic places. But he may have mentioned it here in Mark chapter 11. The Holy Spirit may have given him the idea to put it down in what we call Mark chapter 11 in order to associate the messianic significance of Jesus on the Mount of Olives as he makes his final entry into Jerusalem. Now, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, and 6 are some of the most unique verses in all the gospel. Let me just reread them quickly. And he said to his disciples, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. It's unbelievable. Jesus is instructing two of his disciples to go into this village. And you're going to find this little colt tied up. And Jesus is giving these disciples the answer to the question that hasn't even been asked yet. And when they answer that question that hasn't even been asked yet, when they answer the question in the right way, they'll give them the colt and say, take it, you can go back into the city. This is the first time in these verses 2 through 6, this is the first time in all 11 chapters that Jesus refers to himself with the name Lord. First time this word has showed up in the whole gospel. It could be, uh, some translations might say master, but it's the same Greek word. Now, we believe that Mark included this event as a way to remind us of one of those principles that keeps coming up, one of those four. Jesus is not simply a good man, but Jesus is the son of the living God. And this event happened as a way to demonstrate to his followers that Jesus is God in the flesh. In fact, I'm going to keep plugging our Sunday school class. This may come up in Sunday school. It's a way to demonstrate to his disciples that Jesus is God in the flesh. With your other hand, turn with me to John 10, verse 27. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all for no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30. I and the Father are one. Wow. 1 John 5, 20. 
1 John 5.20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is God in human flesh. Colossians chapter T, 2. There is no Colossians chapter T. It's Colossians chapter 2. Verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, verse 6 says. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Verse 9, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God in human flesh. Let's go back to Mark 11, beginning in verse 2. Jesus is demonstrating his omniscience. That's just a fancy word that means Jesus knows everything. He knows everything that has ever happened. He knows everything that is happening at the moment, and he knows everything that's going to happen even before it happens. It's one of the attributes of God, and Jesus is God in the flesh. And he's telling his disciples something that there is no human way for him to know. A human can't do this. But Jesus is God in the flesh. A human can't tell you to go buy a pizza in aisle number four at High V. And when you get to High V, there's going to be a guy standing there with a blue shirt on that's going to ask you, where's the hot fudge for my ice cream? That's basically what happens here. Humans can't do that. Jesus is telling his disciples about a colt that's tied up in another location. And he tells his disciples how to answer the question before the question is even asked. Now this event, you know, I don't know everybody's story. I, don't, I know a lot of your stories and I know a lot of you people. I would guess most of us have been in church for a while. Most of us probably grew up in church, or we, even if we came to faith later in life. Church is a regular part of our life. This event now of Jesus sitting on a colt riding into Jerusalem is commonly known as, and we celebrate this every spring, it's commonly known as Palm Sunday. And Jesus knows... I just picture this. Jesus knows because he's God in the flesh. Jesus knows that even though all these people in Jerusalem are shouting hallelujah, hosanna at the beginning of the week, he knows that at the end of the week they're going to turn on him. And before the week is over, he will have died on the cross. And yet, even though he knows that, he still, chooses, he still chooses to ride into Jerusalem. Now let's look at one other paragraph. Mark 11, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
keep one hand in Mark 11, and with your other hand, turn with me to John chapter 2. I want us to compare a paragraph there, John chapter 2. John 2, verses 13 through 16. Now, you remember the paragraph we just read? Jesus goes in the temple. Look at verse 13, John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now on the surface, most of us would say, well, this is the same story. John uses a few different words. Mark uses some different words. This is not the same story. The story in Mark chapter 11 takes place at the end of Jesus' life. The story in John chapter 2 takes place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. These events are give or take three years apart. And so apparently Jesus has been in the temple overturning the tables, reminding those people who were involved with all this buying and selling that this is God's house. And he's telling them that over and over again. They just don't get it. They didn't get it when he was there in John chapter 2. And now three years later, Passover, he has to do the same thing. So let me close by saying this. It's sometimes easy for us to think that God just sort of winks at sin. Have you ever looked, you think that's the kind of God we worship? You just, ah, no problem. He doesn't just wink at sin. There are consequences for every sin. It's sometimes easy for us to think that God just sort of winks at sin as if there's nothing really all that bad. Come on, Steve, it's not really that bad what I'm doing or not doing. But then we read Mark 11 and we read John chapter 2 and we see the righteous anger that Jesus demonstrates towards sin. This whole idea of Jesus knowing everything was not just about life in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It's about life in Sioux Falls in 2019. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus is there watching and he sees everything we do on Tuesday afternoon. And he listens to everything we're saying on Friday morning. And he's watching every place we go on Saturday night. And he sees that we come to church on Sunday morning. This is not just about Sunday morning. This is about honoring and glorifying God with our decisions every day, 24-7. Jesus knows the sins we enjoy. Let me say that phrase again. Jesus knows the sins we enjoy. And he knows the language we use outside of this room. And he knows the places we go when we think no one is watching or listening. If you and I are going to become fully devoted followers of Jesus, we need to be serious about what we do. We need to be serious about where we go. 
we need to be serious about the language we use. Because not only is the world watching, God is watching as well. May God help all of us to repent of our sin and to have the desire to live our lives that reflect our love for Him. If we could come up with a title like we do week after week, if we could come up with a title for Mark 11 that would remind us of God's omniscience, it would be something like this. Jesus always knows. Your assignment for next week, if you choose to accept it, is to read Mark chapter 12 before we come together. Let's close in prayer and we're going to ask the ushers to come and take our offering. Lord Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross and for shedding your blood and for providing a way for us to have our sin forgiven. And we ask, Lord, that you would do your work in our lives. Give us the desire to change the way we live and to become more like you each and every day. As we take this offering, we ask that you would help us to continue being good stewards of all that you've entrusted into our care. And Lord, we're grateful for the leaders here at Crosspoint and we trust they'll continue being good stewards of all that we entrust into their hands. So thank you for blessing all of us above and beyond more than we deserve. We thank you for this offering. We thank you for each gift and each giver. We ask that you'd walk with us through the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.